just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're taking the podcast on the road. I'm in the Costa Navarino Resort in the Peloponnese, and I'm joined by a very appropriate guest. It's Madeline Miller, who is the author of the Orange Prize-winning The Song of Achilles and its new best-selling and also Orange shortlisted follow-up, Circe. Madeline, Hello, I should say welcome, but you're really welcoming me to your reading weekend. <laughs> thank you, thank you for having me. I start by just talking about you know, the classics and what it was that, that led you to start thinking, you know, I want to take these old stories and use those as the basis for, for my fiction. So I have a, a master's in classics, and that's sort of where my, my academic background is. Um, and I, I plan to, to go off and teach classics. And at the same time that that was happening, I was also developing my writing. And at that point, I actually had planned to be a contemporary fiction writer. Um, I had written sort of a contemporary, a terrible contemporary novel that I had written in college that was sort of, you know, this is the old Ann Patchett talks about how you have to turn on the faucet and let the sludge come out before you get to the good water. That was my sludge for sure. It had never occurred to me to write about classics, even though I spent all my time doing classics and then the rest of my time doing writing. And finally, what sort of brought it together for me was actually theater, which is the third thing that I love. I co-directed a production of Troilus and Cressida, which is Shakespeare's adaptation of the Iliad. And I just fell in love with being part of the storytelling. It was the first time that I could really get my hands in and sort of shape how the actor who was playing Achilles or Odysseus or Agamemnon was delivering the lines. You know, I could shape Cassandra. I could shape all these all these characters. Obviously, I was working sort of with the actors through Shakespeare's words. But, you know, as a director, you have a lot of leeway also. And it was just, thr- it was addictive. It was thrilling. And something connected for me. And I had been planning to write my master's thesis on Achilles and Patroclus and representations of their relationship kind of through the centuries. And as soon as I finished the play, I realized that's not what I want to write my master's thesis on at all. The things I want to say about Achilles and Patroclus, I want to say in a novel. And that's the format I want to use. So it was it was kind of a bolt of lightning, actually. And you you said you kind of kept this slightly on the QT for a while, even. I did. I was very worried about, you know, getting kicked out of the classics club and the classics police coming and taking me away at my house. I I was very concerned because I know that these texts are very meaningful to a lot of people that it would be seen as sort of either blasphemous or frivolous or both. So I did not tell anybody that I was working on it, which is a good thing because it then took me 10 years (laughs) from the moment of that that lightning bolt. Um, And when I finally had a finished copy of... Song of Achilles in my hands, I called up my mentor and I sort of like with a trembling voice said, so I've written this novel about Achilles and Patroclus. When you say finished copy, you mean like you'd already got it published yes. by the time you told your mentor. Yes, that's when I told him. <laughs> when I got my first sort of author copy of the book, that's when I told him. 
And, and he said, uh, he had a wonderful response. He said, he said, well, I certainly hope if you wrote about Achilles and Patroclus that you made them lovers. And I said, oh, I did. I think you might like my book then. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and he did. And actually, I mean, and, and that's, the, that's the thing is that I think many of my fears were, were very misplaced about that because I think classicists understand that, you know, retellings are how you keep the stories alive. Yeah. It's a slightly Odyssean trick as well, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Presenting with a fait accompli. Yes. <laughs> it's too late for you to change it. <laughs> and how much freedom do you feel like you have with these stories? I mean, I'm sort of interested, you know, reading Circe in particular, I would go through it going, oh, yes, I, I know, I sort of recognise that bit and I recognise that bit, but then I'm like, did she go to Crete? Did she, did she, have a, did she make the sex the Daedalus? I don't remember this being part of the story. Yes, yeah, so I feel like I have quite a lot of freedom, particularly with Circe, where there are so many gaps in the record. There are really just sort of four major myths about Circe, and they were kind of my foundational pillars, but everything else was just me kind of sewing those together, inventing those, or looking for opportunities like her trip to Crete. So Circe is related to ton, basically every god in the ancient world, but in particular she's related to um, the queen of Crete, Pasiphae, who's married to Minos and who's also the mother of the Minotaur. And so, you know, when you have the opportunity for a Minotaur C-section birth scene in your novel, you have to take your character there to it, of course. <laughs> so, you know, sort of looking for moments like that where it made sense for Circe's story to, to kind of touch other myths. I didn't just want to be shoving the myths in willy-nilly. I could have, but I, I didn't it want to. the Titans did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't want to bring in Pegasus and Hercules and sort of here's everybody. I, I wanted it to always be serving Cersei's story and be sort of around Cersei. So I tried to really keep it to sort of myths that naturally touched her story. But I, you know, I really like to write pretty close to the sources because I, I like to feel like I'm in conversation with them. I'm sort of responding even on a on a word level to things that might be in Homer or might be in Ovid and, you know, pushing back in some places, accepting it in other places. Is there a sort of sense in which, I mean, it's maybe a kind of counterintuitive idea, but that what you have to do in a thing like this is do what science fiction writers do in terms of world building. You know, this... Because it's clear in Circe, at least, that there's, like, there's the Titans, obviously, and they've got certain powers, and yes. the Olympians have other powers, and then the Fates have a different set of powers, and then there's sort of pharmacare yes. that is the witchcraft that Circe's got is another thing that is different and kind of can't, resists Zeus's powers. I mean, are you having to create in your head a kind of self-consistent hierarchy of how these things work. Absolutely. And that was actually one of the one of the biggest challenges is because a lot of these things are very nebulous in the ancient stories or they're sort of sometimes they're one way, sometimes they're the other way. You know, if you just think about the fates and sort of the role the fates play, sometimes the fates seem to be serving the gods and sometimes the fates seem to be control they control the gods as well. So even something like that sort of as as to the role the fates play. Yeah, so I had to make a lot of calls. What does it mean to be a nymph? What are the types of powers that the Titans have? Is Oceanus, who is Circe's grandfather, the god of fresh water or salt water? Because he's both at different times. And so all, all these types of things. And then witchcraft, most of all. Because ancient witchcraft, we have very little good sources about how it worked. We know that witches were associated with cursed tablets and love potions. But most of our sort of you know, things about witches are very negative portraits from the outside that are sort of parodying, satirizing 
witches. So it's it's very hard to sort of understand how the system of witchcraft worked. So I was definitely making, it was very much like sort of fantasy or science fiction world building because I had to sort of make choices that made it consistent all the way through. And actually it was, I, it was very gratifying because those are, those, the, those types of choices sort of making the world work that way, they should be invisible when the novel is done. So the, the author has to put quite a bit of work into making sure that all that works and fits. But when I was talking to the the book is possibly, hopefully, going to be adapted for, for TV. So I was talking to the writers about it, and they had some very specific questions about sort of how nymphs moved. Could nymphs completely turn into water? Could all nymphs do, water nymphs do it? And I had thought of all the answers already because I had done all that world building, and they were very excited that I had done it. And I was like, well, I couldn't have written the, the novel if I didn't know the answers to those but things. Why do you think it is that... that- you know, you're writing a novel now and, you know, there is a sort of feeling or expectation that you can't leave that stuff mm-hmm. too vague or at least you, you can leave it vague in the book, but you need to know. Yeah. And in the, you know, classical myths, I think generally they, they were happier to be vague. Yes, or, or inconsistent. It was okay. Yeah, is it that we, we're used to a set of ideas about how fiction or worlds need to work? Well, I think because what I'm writing is is sort of in this, I, I call it, I did not coin this phrase, but I call it mythological realism. I feel like it's the realism aspect that needs to have those rules and that underpinning because I don't want to be totally in the realm of myth. I want to be grounded in sort of individual lives and psychologies. And that's actually what has always drawn me to the stories is that, you know, looking at the Odyssey, yes, there are gods and monsters, but what I see is that it's the story of this exhausted war veteran desperate to get home to his family. And so focusing in on sort of the human and the physical and the, you know, actual psychology of each one of these characters, I think you have to know the rules of the world. Otherwise, the world won't feel real enough. But if you're telling a myth, which I think is sort of slightly different, then it's okay, I think, if the rules are a little bit more up in the air. So for a novel, especially a novel today, I do think people want it want it more pinned down. Does the world of this book kind of is it to you the same as the world of your first book or you know because the worlds of the odyssey and the world of the iliad are you know very different sort of tonally yes do you feel there's a correspondence in in the shift between your book and the first book Um, I definitely saw them as the same world, and the Odysseus is the same Odysseus. But I have two very dramatically different narrators. I have sort of a mortal man, and then I have, you know, an immortal woman who is, you know, also a witch. And so they have completely different life experiences and completely different takes on the one overlapping character, which is Odysseus. And they also see Odysseus at very different times in his life. So for me, it, it wasn't... Those the worlds are consistent, but I I wanted them to also sort of echo the fact that the Iliad and the Odyssey are very different. So, you know, Song of Achilles is really a love story at its heart. It's it's about epic things, but it's told from this very intimate place. Whereas Circe, I I wanted to sort of set a woman's life, which has been traditionally sort of seen as very small at the center of a lot of epic stuff and sort of given her the same epic scope. And and I, I actually wanted Circe to kind of mirror the Odyssey, that Odysseus is longing for his nostos, his homecoming in the Odyssey. And Circe, too, spends a lot of the novel sort of longing for home, but she doesn't 
have a home. She doesn't have an Ithaca waiting for her because her home is her, you know, abusive sociopathic narcissist family of gods. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. she's trying to escape them. Yes, they're not as nice as they look, those guys. No. <laughs> I mean, the book's been described as, you know, a feminist retelling of the Circe story. Is that a bit of a flat description or do you think that's, that's what you set out to do? Um, I mean, I, I'm a feminist. I definitely think it's a feminist project. But I, I also feel that having a woman's life at the center of a story should just be normal. You know, that it, it shouldn't have to have like a special name for that. That should just be taken for granted. And you talked very well earlier, actually, in, in the reading session, about how when you're engaging with your sources, you can use certain gaps in them to make decisions that aren't made in the original and cast your own inflection on them. What were the big inflection points for Cersei? Where were the big bits where you said, you know, actually, I want to make this explanation of, say, how she comes by her witchcraft or whatever? I mean, what were the big... Sure. So um, how she got to uh, her island of Aiaia. Physically, she gets there in a chariot, but we don't know how she gets there in her life so I chose to make it exile and I was also kind of working with how does she discover her witchcraft which is never explained her power is just sort of she has it and it's clearly very different from divine power and even Hermes is a little bit wary of her so you know even another god doesn't fully understand what it is and so I figuring that out and how she got to that I think her decision to to have a child and how how that happened, you know, in the myth she has, or in one of the versions, because of course there are always many versions, but in one of the versions when Odysseus sails away, she's pregnant. And so sort of that decision um, and what draws her to Odysseus was, was a huge thing. Well, actually Odysseus is narrating it and she has to be sort of, she's down on her knees, she's begging him, she, you know, asks him to, to sleep with her. And it's this very sort of humiliating shrink down <laughs> that happens to her character. And I, first of all, wanted to reject that, but then also look at sort of, well, why is she drawn to Odysseus? What does she like about Odysseus? And then finally, the most important one of all is why is she turning men into pigs? Which, you know, shockingly, Homer doesn't answer. And Odysseus, the most curious man in ancient literature, doesn't ask her. So that's, I feel like, one of the biggest, the biggest ones. Now, the worldview of ancient Greece is, in certain respects, you know, so different from our own. You know, it's fatalistic. It very much doesn't believe all human lives are equally valuable. You know, it's got, it doesn't have the same attitude to interiority we do. What are the things that seem to be kind of like continuous? You know, I mean, how, how big is that disjunction? I'm, I'm not explaining it very well, maybe, but, you know, it's like we, you can produce this beautifully realistic, psychologically developed thing. Yeah. From an ancient myth, and yet there's so much there that's that's alien. Yes, and I and I wanted to sort of capture some of that, the moments that are very different. I wanted to honor some, you know, as I'm sort of looking for the psychological kind of timeless human stories about, you know, in Circe's case, what it's like to be born into a family that you're completely alienated from, and sort of what it takes to get out and finding your own path and finding your voice and eventually finding a home. So I think that's a story that a lot of people can can identify with. But I also, at the same time that I was doing that, I did want there to be things that were very strange and different. I'm thinking in particular of sort of scenes of, well, first of all, scenes of the gods themselves. The fact that, you know, 
Thetis, when she appears in Song of Achilles, is very alien and very strange. And yet she's supposed to be sort of an object of worship and reverence, very different from the types of gods that we talk about, or God that we talk about today. So there was that. And when Athena appears here, she sort of scorches the air, doesn't she? Yes, yes. And so I wanted the gods to have that alien quality and to keep that, you know, to not sort of tame the gods that they, they were terrifying and, and taking them seriously, I think. Oftentimes, you know, we think of Greek myth as sort of for kids, that it's sort of these fun stories, but I wanted to take them seriously. What does it mean if this is your god? What does that mean? I think this was something actually that I felt like I was really threading the <laughs> threading the needle on with Song of Achilles because ideas about sort of, first of all, the idea of, of gay, that word, or, or sort of a, a label like that wasn't, is really anachronistic to the ancient world. And so when you're looking at Achilles and Patroclus and people having negative reactions to their relationship, they're having a very particular type of negative reaction. It isn't about two men being together, which was, you know, much more accepted than than at later periods in history. It has to do with the power dynamic between Achilles and Patroclus and the fact that Patroclus never marries, which is considered very strange. You know, even if you had a lover, you were supposed to still marry, produce an heir, make an advantageous match for your family, which Achilles ends up actually doing, but Patroclus doesn't. And it was also rare to have that kind of sort of same age monogamous relationship that that went for a long time. So I wanted to make sure that the people who were reacting to them were reacting to the right things in their relationship, you know, because their relationship is strange in the ancient world, but it's not strange the same way that, you know, some people who are homophobic might see a a gay relationship today. Not quite mountain. Yes, yes, it isn't, it isn't, exactly. You were finishing writing this exactly as the Me Too Harvey Weinstein stuff was coming out. I was. (laughs) Ancient Greece does seem to be, you know, I mean, it's rape culture, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And was that kind of, did did what was happening now sharpen your attention on it? Or were you just like, yeah, I've been working with this all along? It was, in a way, extremely depressing to realise how little we have come how how not far we have come along this road you know i think we have made some progress but it is it is amazing to see just how often women are still being exploited and abused and taken advantage of and treated as sexual objects and you know the way harvey weinstein treated women is very much the way zeus treated nymphs and it's amazing to sort of see to see that but also horrible. It's horrible that we're still, you know, having these same conversations. So it was it was a very eerie experience, actually, to be like in my final drafts as all these stories are breaking, because it was something that I felt like was really important. And I did feel like it was out there in the world. But seeing it so viscerally, wow, you know, this and this, they are the same, <laughs> was, was, you know, as I said, eerie. I was going to say, do you think one of the ways that the Greek myths are quite porous. I think I've heard, I heard it said that Stephen Fry's made this point. He said the difference between Greek myths and parables and Christian parables is that the ancient Greek stories aren't, they're not pointing a moral, they're not telling you something. Is, is that a fair way of dividing them, do you see? I mean, do you, do you think they're didactic? Um, I don't think that they that they are generally didactic, and I, I do think that's a that's a fair point. And if we were, you know, what's the moral from the Daedalus and Icarus story? You know, don't try. I mean, it's very <laughs> like 
don't ever have any ambition, don't reach for something. They're not moralistic the way we often sort of talk about moralism today. But also, I, I do feel that they're character studies of very flawed people. So in that way, I think you can sort of infer lessons from them. So looking at the Iliad, you know, you see Agamemnon, he's a horrendous leader. And I think you can definitely see ways that he is failing along the way to be a good leader. Um, You can see Achilles' own failures along the way. And so even though they're not moralistic in that way, I do think that they have sort of lessons about humanity in them. And what are the other adaptations? Because we've been talking a lot about different, you know, the many different versions have gone that you've you've drawn from and learnt from yourself. I mean, are there? Do you sort of go if I want to get the flavour of Troy, the Trojan War? You know, I go to Christopher Logue, or I go to you know the, the old classical translations, or you know, what what has inspired you? So usually I avoid adaptations about what I, whatever it is I'm adapting. So I can talk about ones that I love that don't really touch on uh, my... So I love Autobiography of Red by Anne Carson. It's one of my favorites. Her Sappho translation is also tremendous. I love Troilus and Cressida. It's one of my favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite plays. So, so sometimes I'll, I'll go to that. But honestly, when I'm looking for inspiration, I, I go back to the original. Or I read secondary sources. I sort of read scholars arguing about the original, which is always very fruitful for me. It doesn't step on my fiction toes, but it is very... I, I use all that in the fiction. Do you think it, it matters if people who are doing free adaptations, they can't read the Greek? I mean, like Logue or like somebody else you mentioned earlier. I think it all depends on what their what their goal is. Because I like to sort of be close to the material and, and speak, be in dialogue with the material, I think I need to be pretty close. But I don't think you have to be necessarily to, to be successful. So it depends what you're, what you're trying to do. Are there any myths you think you kind of can't do or can't redeem that are sort of too alien? I mean, maybe Medea is one of the tricky ones. I mean, you have Medea in here. Yeah. Because... You know, we find it hard to sympathize with somebody who <laughs> chopped up her children. Yes, yes, that's it, that's a hard, <laughs> it's a hard sell at the end there. That's a really good question. I have always found, although I I like her in many ways, I have always found it really difficult to, in any way, sort of sympathize with Athena and the Arachne myth. I feel like, you know, get over it. She beat you. <laughs> you don't turn her into a spider. So sort of moments like that where I sort of, I'm not sure I could write that scene. I can't, I'm not sure I can feel that sympathy with Athena. But in terms of the two alien, that's a really good question. I'll have to think about that. I'm just remembering, I think it's somewhere in Donna Tartt's The Secret History. She has this figure, figuration for what, you'll, you'll probably remember it, you know, the classics feeling like a, a sort of cold flame on a marble thing. It's, it's, it's that sense that it's a totally different, well, I mean, is that one of the things that sort of attracts you, that it is alien, however much you can infuse it with modern psychological meaning? Is this strangeness still part of the thrill of it? Yes. I mean, I mean, it is alien. I mean, one of the things that I always think about is sort of what it would be like, you know, sacrifices were a common place part of daily life. And how many of us see an animal killed in front of us on a daily basis you know even even stuff like that that would be if we were dropped into ancient Greece that would be a very strange thing I do I do like I like I like them I like it both I like the distance and the nearness at the same time how closely do you kind of 
I mean, are you one of those people who goes and writes and rewrites and rewrites? There are some passages, I mean, like in Circe, the transformation into a pig. You've got a, there's a single paragraph in which so much goes on in such a compressed way and it's so visceral and so violent. I was like, did she spend months doing this? Really <laughs> um, oh, well, thank you. That's very good. <laughs> um, I, I am, I do do a lot of editing. I am a big, I'm a big reviser and I love to, you know, go back over, read, reread, reread, and I'm constantly tinkering. I sort of, I'm tinkering right up to the end, actually. Um, and I sort of know that I'm done when my rule is, which I, I took from another writer. I wish I could remember who said this um, or where I read this. But when I'm changing commas to semicolons and then back to commas again, it's like, okay, I'm finished. <laughs> That's I have to call it now. I, I think that it just, I'm a very slow writer and I, I love the potency of poetry. I'm not a poet at all, but I love how each word in a poem is really load-bearing. And I like to sort of try and write in that direction a little bit. I want each word to, to carry weight and to, to say it in as you know, potent a way as possible. Now, as somebody who's obviously adapting somebody else's work, how do you feel about these television adaptations that are coming? <laughs> I mean, are you, are you kind of like, that's cool, I back the check. <laughs> as, as many writers are you know. someone was just telling me and again I can't remember the name of, about a writer who said here's how you have to do it you you go up to the wall outside Hollywood and you throw the book over and they throw a bag of money back and that's it <laughs> and then you walk away that is has not been my experience at all I'm not going to be involved in the specifics of it but it's been lovely to to really talk to people who I feel like understand the book and I feel like are gonna are gonna really stand by what it's about and sort of stand by the fact that this is Cersei's story and and so keep keep a lot of of what's there but I also as a theater director I sort of understand that adaptation means also changing you know it's it's has to there has to be a transforming part of that so I, I'm sort of excited to see what the transformation is going to be. Have, have the classics generally been served well by cinema, do you think? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, it's hard, yes. I, I feel like I have seen some truly amazing stage plays of many, not just the tragedies, but many versions of the Iliad on the stage. Um, I saw a stage reading of Emily, parts of Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey, which was tremendous. So I feel like the stage is, they have definitely succeeded on the stage. And, and there have been wonderful things that I'm not thinking of right now, I'm sure, in, in film. But I, I think it, it's, it's hard. And I think one of the things, of course, that's hard is how you deal with the fantastical elements. And now we finally have the technology where it doesn't look quite so cheesy. But I, I think that that is what always pulled me out a little bit is sort of the like the special effects like here come the special effects you yeah. know that that kind of pulls you out pulls me out anyway of the dream no i'm just always interested to hear what uh, you know classicists have said that because i would be absolutely astonished when hoping to get a run of absolute bile from tom holland who's a historian <laughs> of the persian war i said what did you think of 300 and he said i thought it was fantastic that's exactly how the persians would have seen themselves and I was just sort of gobsmacked. You know? Wow, I'm also gobsmacked because I I have a lot of issues with the 300. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, yes, we'll move on. We'll, we won't go about 300. How do you think, were she alive today, Homer would 
look on your work? <laughs> well, I, if I'm going to be really brutally honest, I don't believe that Homer was a person. Um, I think that Homer was the name that the ancients gave for, you know, the whoever was the possibly the best bard who was performing these works that came out of oral tradition. So there were a lot of hands that went into this and a lot of centuries that went into shaping the Iliad and the Odyssey. So hopefully, um, whoever they were, <laughs> they would just see me as sort of working in the same line that I'm just, you know, adding, adding my own things to it. And hopefully they would forgive me. I'm sure they would. Madeline Miller, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.